Higgins now lands swings and he crushes it. Left center field. Warning track walk. Goodbye. Today's episode of the WAC Podcast is presented by Hercules Tires. Now here's your host, Eric Danner. Welcome to the WAC Podcast. My name is Eric Danner. A very big show planned for you today. We're going to have Jason Kwan, the California Baptist University Director of Strength and Conditioning, in our second segment. Jason, uh, we'll talk with him about uh, all the challenges uh, that the coronavirus has presented with uh, strength and conditioning and and some of the ideas that he's done to communicate with his student athletes. And in our final segment today, Scott Williams, the GCU men's basketball TV analyst. Scott played in the NBA for 14 years and was a teammate of Michael Jordan for his first three years. Actually owes part of his NBA career to Michael Jordan. Uh, So we'll get into that a little bit. He was also a teammate of LeBron James, so one of only four players ever to play with both MJ and LeBron James. So we're looking forward to that conversation with Scott Williams. We'll also talk GCU hoops as they have two new coaches. But as always, in our first segment, as I say, my favorite uh, time of the week, we talk to Rachel Hill, the WAC on-air talent and broadcasting coordinator. Rachel, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Eric? I was just thinking I need Jason to uh, give me a workout plan. You know, he, he's, doing, <laughs> he's doing a deal called Fitness Fridays. Uh, for CBU oh, okay. on uh, social media. So we'll, we'll get into that a w- little bit too. And one of the things I was thinking there, Rachel, was what's it going to look like in weight rooms when students do return, when student athletes do return uh, with, you know, coronavirus, you know, being able to live on surfaces, all that could, how much is that going to change, you know, in terms of cleaning and are, are we going to see different kinds of equipment possibly made as a result of all this? Yeah, that's true. You know, I got an email from my gym about probably a week and a half ago, and it sounds like they're going to be doing like time sections. So you'll reserve a spot to go into the gym and then you have to clean everything the second you're done. So they're like upping all the disinfectant wipes and everything. But yeah, I can't even imagine like a student athlete gym, how like crazy that would be. But I feel like at the same time, it's a little bit more controlled than an actual gym would be. Now, uh, the last two weeks you've been in Kansas. I, I believe you're you're back home in Colorado now. Back in Colorado, yep. Came back. I uh, was able to celebrate with my mom, even though we did social distancing. We kind of just sat out on our front porch and we had ice cream, so it was nice to see her. It was so sad though; like I couldn't hug my own mom on Mother's uh, Day. Yeah, it is. It is, and hopefully we can get to that uh, before too long. And Happy Mother's Day to all the the mothers out there and uh, things are starting to to open up a little bit uh watching espn a little bit this weekend uh, actually there were some live sporting events for the first time in uh, quite some time ufc had a big fight uh, in florida uh actually on the, i think it was saturday morning i'm watching some sort of cornhole tournament in south carolina and the competitors are wearing masks and and the judges are wearing gloves you know picking up the I forget what they're called, the the things they throw, the beanbag things, you know, when you play Cornell. And yep. so I would have probably never watched that in a million years, except for the fact that I've, you know, just jonesing for some sort of competition. So watch that. And, and it was kind of interesting to see how they score it and, you know, the backgrounds and some of the competitors and those kind of things. And then the Korean Baseball League has, has been on ESPN, some of the games. So uh, again, uh, not quite normal life, but uh, some signs that sports are starting to open up. And then I understand some NBA and, and Major League Soccer teams are starting to, to hold some workouts as well. 
Yeah, I was just actually talking to my dad because I think it's really interesting because some NBA teams and or MLS, yeah, have opened up their training facilities, but some haven't. So like the Mavs, they said they're not going to open up their facilities at all. So if the N- the NBA does come back, say, but a owner's not going to allow teams to work out, like you know what I mean? Yeah. How is that dynamic going to work? Yeah, obviously they- Mark Cuban's like huge and everything, and that's his call, right? It, it would be, and, and then there's still talk of the NBA trying to do their playoffs, uh, possibly in Orlando, maybe having everything in Orlando, maybe having part of it in Las Vegas uh, and Orlando. So that remains to be seen. But again, they're probably going to have to make some decisions, uh, per, you know, in the in the next few weeks to see if uh, the season's going to continue or not. Uh, in the NCAA, Mark Emmert uh, did an interview with uh, Peter King, and, and he did uh, say that the, he could not envision college football without college students on campus, which I think is kind of the prevailing wisdom here, but that uh, coming from Mark Emmert uh, maybe carries a little more weight with it. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think it's great that they're putting forth the fact that, you know, being a student is the number one priority for all of these athletes. Uh, So if they're not going to be doing classes and no one else is going to be on campus, then there will not be college sports, which makes sense right like that's the whole reason that they're going to college is to get an education so i don't know what i would do this fall if there's no college football college soccer anything like that might yeah. be a little sad but it both. does make sense a lot of things up in play we talked to jeff Hurd on our podcast last week if you want to listen to that and and you know one of the things he was talking about is it's it's difficult because you got to make decisions or or plan for things that you don't know you know what we're planning for yeah, it's true. And Jeff's awesome. It was a great interview to hear from him, too. Now, this week we would have had uh, outdoor track and field in Edinburgh, Texas. And I believe uh, we'll be back there next year is the plan now uh, since they weren't able to host this year. Uh, but uh, definitely was one of those events I was looking forward to. I had not been to outdoor track and field uh, since I've been in the WAC. So I was uh, looking forward to that. And uh, Jonah Goldberg was going to be our play-by-play person. And uh uh, that would have been a lot of fun, but uh, again, you know, we'll, we'll punt till next year. He was also on the WAC podcast, so he was definitely check it out. He has <laughs> some great stories for sure. And then uh, New Mexico State was was in the news quite a bit this past week, Rachel, and and one of those was uh, Chris Jans. His name was being floated around as a a candidate at East Tennessee State, which was. Uh, kind of uh, an eyebrow raiser around uh, whack circles, especially. Uh, I mean, uh, definitely Chris Jans in three years. I think I think he's 82 and 17 as head coach at New Mexico State, and you would think he's going to draw some interest from uh, some schools because uh, of the success he's had there in Las Cruces. I think the thing that had people maybe scratching their head a little bit is East Tennessee State didn't seem to be the next logical uh, type of school that that Chris Jans might go to. Yeah, and to be completely honest, I wasn't worried when I saw the headline. I know Coach Jans and his entire family love the Las Cruces area, so I wasn't too worried about him leaving. Well, maybe if a bigger school comes along, you know, you always want to see people continue to move up, but I do love having Coach Jans here. I think he makes basketball super interesting here in the WAC, so I think it would be a bummer if he ever did leave, but it sounds like he's going to be in Las Cruces for a long time. Yeah, what happened there at East Tennessee State? Now, they're actually a very good program. Uh, Steve Forbes, their coach, got the Wake Forest job, which is uh, why the East Tennessee State job was open. But Chris Jans tweeted on May 6th, let's run it back, hashtag Aggie up, hashtag 
unfinished business. So uh, a lot of happy folks in Las Cruces that Chris Jans is staying, and and why not? I mean, they they have been a powerhouse in the three years he's been here, and, and long before that. But uh, as we talked about before, Rachel, this what could have been a team that could have been a Sweet 16 run. Who, who knows how good they could have been this year? And you know the way he's got it set up, that they should be good for years to come. Yeah, I mean, they are a powerhouse, and it's so much fun to watch them play. And Coach Jans is so nice and so professional all the time, so it's so nice to have a coach like that here in the WAC, too, along with plenty of other coaches here. But, yeah, I think that they're going to be great for a very, very long time. Plus, I think it makes our conference better, right? Like, when you're playing great teams like it just continues to make your conference better so that's always what we want to see right and that's where the bar is set i mean and when we talk to coaches on media day they'll say hey uh, new mexico state's the bar that's the team we're going after and it makes california baptist better makes seattle u better makes utah valley better makes all the teams in the WAC better when you're trying to wait when you know that's the bar you have to reach if you want to get to the ncaa tournament uh nick nick gonzalez uh our, our weekly update, it seems, on Nick Gonzalez, the uh, fabulous baseball player for the Aggies, uh, featured in Sports Illustrated this week. So uh, getting some, some more pub, uh, the one with uh, DeAndre Hopkins on the cover. So uh, good good news for Nick Gonzalez as the uh, Major League Draft. I, I saw ESPN reporting, Rach, that the MLB Draft will be June 10th. So uh, we're, we're just about a month away from when the MLB Draft, and they also are reporting it's only going to be five rounds. So I saw that. Um, not very many folks are going to get selected as in normal years, but uh, Nick Gonzalez, as we've said on the podcast here a few times, expected to be a top five pick in the draft and now being featured by SI. Yeah, and, I, you know, I would love to get him to be on one of our Instagram lives, Twitter lives. So he's definitely going to be a prospect I'm looking at, hopefully, you know, before he gets all big time on us. Uh, but I'd love to sit down and talk to him just kind of about what this process has been like, obviously not playing this spring and then, you know, leading up to the draft. So hopefully we can get him on soon. Now, the other thing in the ESPN report was uh, with a, only a five round draft, all of the other undrafted players could sign for $20,000. So that might not be as enticing as if you're, say, a seventh round pick and you might get more money than that for signing. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how many folks take advantage of that it'll be interesting to see how many whack baseball players are drafted and then how many you know potentially could sign minor league contracts yeah that's true and i think i it almost opens up more doors i feel like for smaller schools or players that weren't getting as much attention to so i think it'll be very interesting to see where some of these smaller players end up going we also have uh one other thing with new mexico state there it is it's a pun chanachai their outstanding golfer who's been one of the top women's golfers in the WAC the past uh, four years. Uh, she has decided she will come back for her uh, her final semester. So good news for the Aggies uh, women's golf team that uh, Punchanichai is going to return, and, and we have a chance to see her. That was one of the, the players, Rachel, I was thinking, uh, you know, that's too bad. We, we don't get to see her play again, but guess what? We do. Yeah, I know. I was supposed to be going to golf this year, and so I was really looking forward to seeing her play. Obviously, I've like kept up with her throughout her career, so now I'm excited. Hopefully, we're able to go back next year and check her out. And then, uh, as always, uh, kind of like our Nick Gonzalez update, we now have our last dance reacts update, Rach. Uh, episode 7 and 8 on, on Sunday night, and that was uh, the most emotional uh, last dance uh, 
couple of episodes that we've had a chance to see. And, and I, in my opinion, maybe the two best episodes uh, during the series so far. Oh, it was so good. And uh, I had no idea that his father was murdered. I yeah. guess I just was too young. And right, right. Know, yeah, that, but... yeah, that what probably would have happened before you were born, I'm guessing, or right around that yeah. time. Yeah it, yeah, it was it was a huge deal when it happened. Obviously, he, he initially was missing. Uh, turned out he was murdered. And, and the the sad part, and, and they got into it in the documentary a little bit, is the fact that people, the, the conspiracy theories started to come out and that it, it was somehow related to a gambling debt that uh, Michael Jordan had, which turned out he, he, his father was murdered uh, by a couple of 18-year-olds, as, as it turns out, and he had pulled over on the side of the road uh, to take a nap, uh, was driving home late at night. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a, a big deal at that time. And you can see where that led to uh, having an influence on, on Michael Jordan, then retiring from basketball, <laughs> and then uh, going on to uh, play baseball. I think going on to play baseball probably had more to do with that because his, his dad always wanted him to be a baseball player. Yeah, I just, when that, that came out, I was like so heartbroken. And then, of course, for people to go out there and say that like it's because of him, you know, being a journalist, your word, I think, sometimes is more than people realize. Right. Like, I can't even imagine putting out there and being like, oh, yeah, like, this is because of Michael Jordan. Like, I just, the fact that he is human, you know, you have to, like, humanize that. And that would just, like, destroy you. I can't even imagine. Well, and they... But also, the fact that he's so good at baseball, too, I'm just like, of course. Well, well what's interesting, too, is... is... I think there was a general feeling that he was terrible at baseball and that why would the greatest basketball player in the world go to play double-A baseball when he's 31 years old and he only hit 202? I was always a Jordan is – that's amazing that he hit 202 in double-A baseball. And they got into it a little bit on the documentary as well where, you know, can you imagine not playing for what was it, 13 years? Double-A baseball is a really good level of baseball. And they said they couldn't put him in single-A because none of the facilities had the media set up that uh, they knew they were going to require with him playing double-A, just the crush of media that was following him every single game. The other thing that happened was there was a, a uh, work stoppage in Major League Baseball that year. So there were like Birmingham Baron games on ESPN because <laughs> <laughs> Michael Jordan's you – know, you don't know any of the other players on the teams – but there was that much interest, and and when he wasn't, you know, he he had, you know, being six foot six, you know, they he didn't have the classic swing. But one of the things that they they didn't touch on, I believe he stole thirty one bases in that year. I mean, they, I think they said in, in one of the episodes what he ran a four four forty. I mean, so the 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 level of athleticism that Michael Jordan had. Uh, it, it's just so interesting to watch this documentary and all the different things that that come out of it. Yeah, I loved it because you know I didn't really get to ever see MJ. I've heard all the stories, I've seen all the highlights, but to actually get an in-depth look into his life has been so interesting. I'm so sad that we only have two more episodes left. But the other thing that I thought was really funny was how you know they talk about so much of him being out of shape and. Because he turned his body into a baseball yeah. body. And yeah, that was everything. interesting. Just, you never think about the different muscle groups that like playing each sport, you know, because when you think of athletes, I think of them just being overall completely in shape, right? Which they are, but there's different muscle groups that have to be strong for each sport that you play. So 
super duper interesting and the fact that he was still putting up great numbers when they considered him to be out of shape (laughs) the other thing i think is really interesting is how many players talked smack to him and then the next night he went off i was like by the end of it by like 89 or 98 like why would you ever say anything about him? Because you just know the next night that he's going to go off on you. The whack tie-ins, uh, another weekly segment here. Uh, I mentioned Randy Brown last week, played at New Mexico State from 1989 to 1991. That was back when New Mexico State was in the Big West. He actually had a very nice NBA career, played 11 years, was a second-round pick of the Sacramento Kings in 1991, joined the Bulls in 95. And if you see the 96 highlight when they beat Seattle, and he, and he goes to the floor, Michael Jordan, with the ball. It's Randy Brown that jumps on top of him in, in that uh, in that scene. And it was a very uh, emotional uh, segment that they had there in the documentary where, you know, he talks to Ahmad Rashad, and then he goes into the locker room, and he's just crying. I mean, just, you know, emotion just pouring out of him. And just a very private moment that you get to see that it's one of those things, man, I, I cannot imagine the, the kind of emotion that uh, Jordan was going through at that time. But Randy Brown, uh, a, a teammate of his at that time. And then the the year after the last dance, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Rachel, the, uh, the team's going to break up after they win the championship. Um, in 1998-99, Brown then became a starter for the Bulls uh, that following year and played 11 years in the league and then wound up being an assistant coach for the Bulls from 2015 to 2018. So uh, a very nice uh, career and and good to see him get recognized a little bit in this documentary. Sean Bradley went to BYU, played one year in the WAC in 1991, was the WAC freshman of the year. He's all over the WAC record books, Rachel. He had 5.2 block shots per game, which is the WAC record in 1991 as a freshman. 14 blocks in one game. That is the WAC record against Eastern Kentucky in 1990, had 177 blocks in a season. Now, the tie-in that White was on the uh, Last Dance uh, documentary and a couple of the shots, he was in Space Jam back in 1996. He was one of the uh, characters that they turned into a cartoon. Sean Bradley, seven foot six, uh, for those of you that don't remember. Uh, so he was 1991, played at BYU, went on his mission, came back two years later, was the second pick in the NBA draft, and had a, a nice NBA career there, maybe didn't live up to the, the expectations, but nonetheless had a very good career. And then uh, one other th- thing I noticed, uh, this is a, a reach for a whack tie-in here, but Brooks Thompson uh, was with the Orlando Magic when they when they defeated the Bulls that first year. Uh, J- Jordan came back that first, you know, when he only played a couple months. Uh, Brooks uh, played, he was a coach in the WAC for one year. He's a head coach at UTSA in 2012-13. I actually played high school basketball against Brooks. He went to Littleton, uh, wound up at uh, Texas A&M and then Oklahoma State and was a first-round pick of the Orlando Magic. Now, unfortunately, he uh, passed away. I looked it up actually four years ago already, hard to believe, uh, had organ failure. He had been uh, let go as the head coach at UTSA and then uh, just a few months later wound up in the hospital and then unfortunately passed away. But yeah, Brooks Thompson uh, making a cameo in the last dance as well. So those are the whack tie-ins for the week. Uh, let's get on to whack all access. You had Henry Fisher from UTRGV as your uh, as your guest this week, and Henry, a very interesting guy, golfer at UTRGV, but he has a lot of other interests, doesn't he? Yeah, so he's actually going to New York City, the Big Apple, because he is going to graduate school for fashion design, um, and I think marketing too is in there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's so nice. It's been so nice to 
get to meet and uh, work with Henry over the past two years. Uh, I actually got to meet him when he first came into the SAC. So it's been really cool just to get to know him and just kind of see him grow. And then for him to head out to the Big Apple, you know, I talked to him because Edinburgh's not a huge city. Right. And then to go to the Big Apple of New York City, I'm like, <laughs> that's going to be a change. But he's actually from Houston, right. so he's kind of used to the big city life. But, yeah, I wish him the best of luck. It was great sitting down and talking to him. And he was WAC, or SAC president this past year, too. So, uh, But he chose not to come back and do golfing uh, next spring and just to kind of focus ahead on the future. So it's interesting to see how many student athletes are kind of having to make that decision uh, for whether they're going to return or whether they're not going to. Well, one of the things from your interview with Henry I thought was interesting was he was talking about how there is fashion involved with golf, maybe more so than any other sport. You know, you play basketball, you wear the uniform, you you know, you do uh, any other sport, you basically have a uniform. And, and there is a uniform involved in golf, but you can, you know, your shoes, your you know, you, you can kind of uh, dial it up a little bit on the fashion side. Yeah, that's definitely true, too. Uh, granted, though, I also think some other sports, maybe not the actual uniforms, but they do show their uniqueness when they dress, whether that's heading into a game or not. So fashion all around the sports life, but I definitely <laughs> do agree that golf maybe has like one level up there. Now on our other uh, WAC uh, franchises this week, uh, WAC Top Play Monday. Uh, this week we'll have women's uh, soccer goals, and there was a lot of them <laughs> that were nominated uh, on WAC Top Play this week and or uh, o- over the course of the year. Uh, and you forget about some of the, the great ones, uh, you know, or they kind of get blended in. But uh, Seattle U, man, they, they had several, including the uh, the match winner for the tournament championship in overtime. Yeah. Oh gosh. I've had so much fun the last couple of years at both soccer tournaments. It's been so much fun to just see the emotion that these women and men play with. Uh, so I'm excited to take a look back at these uh, top plays as well. And then the performances of the decade on Wednesday, last week we had softball hitters this week. We're going to have baseball pitchers as we only have a couple more of those left uh, for the month. Uh, we'll have baseball pitchers this week and then baseball hitters the following week, and then whack in the day. Uh, last week was softball. This week will be outdoor track and field to go along with the fact that this would have been the outdoor track and field championships in Edinburgh. And I, I looked up the uh, weather forecast. It would have been in the uh, about 93, 94 every day in Edinburgh, which is uh, actually pretty nice. I, I know it can get pretty toasty down there this time of year, as it can in many places, but. Uh, would have been a, a, a great time to be down in Edinburgh as uh, we're here in Colorado. I don't know what it's like in Denver, but it's uh, it's pretty chilly in Colorado Springs. We're expecting some rain and kind of 40s and 50s today. Yeah, it's a little chilly up here, too, in Denver. I was going to say, Eric, though, are you sad that you're going to miss out on getting a tan in Edinburgh this year? Because uh, it's thing, a Rachel, very toasty place. I do not, I do not tan, so uh, that would you not have burn. been a, I would have, I would have burned and sweat. And then uh, gone back to white. That's usually how it goes. <laughs> what a bummer, man. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think we would have been in some sort of a press box. Um, we okay, we wound gotcha. up not, uh, you know, and, and again, if we're, we're uh, I believe they're going to be hosting next year. So uh, we would hopefully be doing the live streaming there next year. And, and uh, yeah, the, we were talking about having like some sort of uh, a place that we would uh, be covered anyway. So, 
<laughs> that would alleviate from the the sunburn that we would uh, potentially have down in Edinburgh. So the humidity down there is just brutal. <laughs> <laughs> it can be. It can be. Well, hey, Rach, uh, always great to talk to you, and uh, uh, thanks for for being on the show uh, again. And and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds like a plan, Eric. Thanks for having me. All right. Coming up next on the WAC Podcast, we're going to have Jason Kwan, the CBU Director of Strength and Conditioning. You're listening to the WAC Podcast. We would like to thank our partners, Hercules Tires, Ticket Smarter, and Adidas. Now, back to the WAC Podcast. Welcome back to the WAC Podcast. Eric Danner with you, reminding you that Hercules Tires is the official tire of the Western Athletic Conference and for over 65 years has been providing tires with unbeatable quality at an unmatched value. Whatever the vehicle, whatever the terrain, Hercules Tires invites you to ride on our strength for a retailer near you. Visit HerculesTires.com. And joining us now on the WAC Podcast is the CBU Director of Strength and Conditioning. His name is Jason Kwan. Jason, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jason. Just uh, was uh, talking with you a little bit uh, off uh, off recording here, and uh, how are things going there? Uh, you know, we uh, things are going pre- things are going pretty well. You know, we uh, California was uh, you know with COVID nineteen thing. You know, California was pretty quick to close down stuff, and so we've been CBU closed. I think in uh, mid March. Uh, we closed down the university mid March, I think, and so we've been home since. But uh, we're we're staying as sol- as safe as we can, and uh, you know, masks masks are uh, are are pretty much mandatory, and I think they're starting to lift up the restrictions now. So we'll see how that plays out. But uh, it, things have been going pretty well, and um, I think people are respecting those you know those guidelines pretty well. So I think we're pretty hopeful. Now you work with a number of different teams there at CBU before the, the pandemic, what, what was a typical work day like for you as a strength and conditioning coach? Um, you know, a typical day for me. So, uh, to kind of paint a picture, CBU has, uh, somewhere around 400 athletes, um, about 18 different sports when you count men's and women's. And, um, we have, uh, in terms of the strength and conditioning program, we, I have myself and, um, and uh, another and one other assistant. Uh, his, his name is Michael Robinson. He's a great guy. Um, and um, you know, we're we start our day off with uh, you know I'm I'm at the weight room at like 6 a.m. or a little before 6 a.m. and um, that's where my first team is. And I I have a team at 6 a.m. Then I have another team at 7 a.m. and another team at 8 a.m. And then um, there's a little bit of a down period uh, where you know we can eat a little breakfast and have some. Uh, do some administrative work and then uh right around um right around noon um you know traffic starts to pick up in the weight room again we start having teams roll in around you know noon one two all the way up to anywhere between four and six o'clock so i might be there between from six to four or six to six kind of depending on the day and when you work with so many different teams you have to have different workouts what how challenging is that for you working with so many not only you mentioned 400 athletes, but how many, you know, different styles of athletes from a cross country runner to, you know, Dejon Davis, you know, big, uh, a rebounding basketball player. Yeah. There, there's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different things to consider when you're writing a program, uh, for these different athletes. And, uh, uh, thankfully I've had some experience with that, uh, before, but, um, you, you know, and, 
in strength and conditioning, you're trying to find the many the things that are going to work most effectively for for your athletes and 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 provide that for them. And um, you know, a lot of the athletes, some athletes will do same things for strength. They might do uh, you know squatting or deadlifting or certain things, certain movements that I sort of carry over and uh, uh, transcend all sports. And then there's really sport specific things that you might do for a swimmer or for a basketball player or a cross country runner, just like you said. And uh, or a baseball pitcher, and uh, just trying trying to identify what those are. Um, you talk to you know, we do our own, of course, continuing education, but we also talk to our coaches and our players about what they need or what they feel or what they want, and uh, we try to we try to come up with ideas and, and solutions to help them excel with those things. So that's how we sort of program that up. Talking with Jason Kwan, the CBU Director of Strength and Conditioning. Now, since the lockdown happened, as you mentioned, about two months ago now uh, there at CBU, how how has your role changed and and how do you now communicate with student athletes and coaches? Um, Our role, my role has changed a little bit in terms of, you know, we're not, obviously we're not in a weight room anymore. Everybody's working at home. And so um, it, part of it has changed in in the sense of like what you said, how we communicate, but uh, what has, what has not changed is that we're still trying to, provide um provide workouts for our athletes uh, we're trying to provide um information and, and guidance and encouragement uh wherever we can wherever and whenever we can um and so uh you know i'd say you know the first thing that we did we my assistant coach and i we started providing body weight workouts the first week that we closed down i think we closed on a friday and i think by monday or tuesday we were putting we were giving them workouts through emails um, passing them along through coaches and, and whatever, however we could to say, to give them some type, some sort of guidance and structure as to, Hey, you know what, you can do something while you're at home. Um, and, uh, and communication wise, I know everybody's been doing this, but, uh, phone calls, zoom calls, zoom meetings with, uh, with teams and coaches and, um, FaceTimes, all those sorts of things. And so we try to get on board and hop on as many calls as we can. Uh, when we need to, in order to just, you know, do question answer, in order to uh, give them structure and guidance, just to follow up and see how they're doing with, with anything that they're, um, anything that they're doing. And with everybody being at home now, I imagine most of the student athletes they, they probably have different setups. I mean, some might be in a small apartment, some might be living, uh, you know, at home with mom and dad, who might have, you know, a weight room in their in their garage or basement. Uh, how, how do you uh, set up workout programs for those student athletes, given the fact that uh, not everybody's going to have the same access to facilities? Uh, that's a great. That's a great question. Um, it it's it's just a lot of it's a lot of work on our on our end in terms of um, trying to provide workouts, instructional workouts, so that you know we um, for every team uh, we might have um, a workout with with weight training and then a, also a, a workout with no weight training, uh, body weight only, um, so that we can accommodate everything. And, you know, uh, you know, for the person who has equipment for person without equipment. And then, um, you know, we give them, we're trying to give out, you know, programs and ideas that they can come up with themselves. So, you know, part of the, part of the difficult thing is, you know, when you're at home, you don't have, you have to be creative. Nobody has, um, you don't have what you had at, at CBU. You don't have the equipment you had at CBU. And even when you go home for the summer, um, you might go to a, you know, a, 
a 24 hour fitness or something or a LA fitness, but even they don't have the same equipment that they do at CBU. It's always a little different. So, um, being resourceful and creative and, um, and, uh, improvising a little bit on those workouts that we provide is, is also really important. And so part of what we want to make them understand too, our athletes is that they have to, uh, they have to think, um, they can't just simply read a program. They have to think about what, what can I do instead of this? What can I do instead of this other exercise? Um, if I don't have a dumbbell, maybe I could do it with this. And then we try to provide those other options as well as um, to show them how to do things and show them how to be creative. Is so, there is there a particular um, exercise that you would say is, is universal that, that could uh, benefit uh, athletes from any sport? One in particular? Uh, one single exercise? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I think... I don't think there's one single exercise that that will benefit or transcend any and all, you know, sports. Um, maybe not exercise. There are lots of different movements that are really important. That's kind of how the way strength coaches think. You know, a squatting movement is really important, and you don't necessarily have to have weights for that. You can uh, simply do body weight body weight squats. If you can hold something in your hands, uh, you can hold something in your hands. If you have dumbbells, that's great. If mm-hmm. you have water bottles, that's great. Um, if you have a pet, I jokingly made a video and posted on, posted up, uh, I think on Fit Friday, of uh, me squatting with my dog. Um, but it, it works. It's, <laughs> it's not something that it's, it's a little weird, but it, it, it kind of works and it's kind of fun. And, and it's just being, to me, it's just, it's simply saying like, you have to be active. You can't sit around all day. Um, it's easy to get, in, to get into that rut, but you have to be physically active and you have to make up for that time. So you have to, you have to constantly do stuff. So, uh, Jason, tell us about fitness Fridays. You mentioned that, uh, just a few seconds ago. What, it, what is that? What's the idea behind that? And is that intended just for student athletes or is it for everybody? Um, it was not intuitive for student athletes. Um, I think it was really intended for the CBU community, um, more than anything else. Um, I was talking with our uh, media and marketing department and we were trying to come up with ideas and they said, Hey, we, what about making a video? And we posted it every Friday and we said, okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll try to work on that. And that's how it came about. And, um, and we just come up, I, come, I try to come up with some different topics or different ideas to, to put out there that might be fun. Um, they're not necessarily for student athletes. They are for, for everybody, um, everybody to do. Um, but student athletes can definitely do them. Um, you know, I don't know about squatting with a dog. Some people can, some people cannot. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's been pretty fun to do that. And I hope we can continue to, to keep making those videos. I think it'll be fun and challenging for people and hopefully keep some, keep some people active or inspires them to do a little bit more than they would normally do. We had uh, Rachel V. Hill on in our previous segment, Jason, and one of the things we're talking about is, you know, the challenges of, of working out at home. And even when we, uh, you know, get back to quote unquote, start getting back to normal, um, what are weight rooms going to look like, you know, with this coronavirus and, and so much, uh, you know, that it can be transmitted, you know, on surfaces and those kind of things. How do you think uh, a weight room might look different in the next year or two uh, based on this coronavirus? Um, that's a really good question. That's something I've, uh, that's something I, I think about, um, that I have been thinking about since I know that, you know, eventually we're going to go back to, go back to, you know, school. I, I don't, 
have a um, a definite answer for what that should or is supposed to look like right now. I think um, I know that you know we want to we we're always we're always thinking about you know um, staying healthy even when the coronavirus wasn't here um, about keeping the place keeping our facilities as sanitary as possible and you know disinfecting equipment and uh, things like that and I, I don't see that it's certainly not going to change um, if anything maybe we'll just be more diligent with it um, you know we're all, we were already pretty diligent with that but mm-hmm. I think we're just going to have to do more do more for that and be more aware of what we're doing um, but I don't know exactly what that'll look like yet talking with Jason Kwan the CBU director of strength and conditioning and after uh, growing up in Tucson, going to, to Arizona, at what point did you decide uh, that being a strength coach or being in this industry was going to be your career path? Um, I think, I think towards the end of my senior year in Tucson, at, at U of A, I was thinking about it. Um, I, I I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I always loved being in the weight room, and um, and I thought the strength coaches at at University of Arizona were really, really cool, and. Um, I just like that idea of, yeah, you're working in the weight room, you're helping athletes get better. And I loved, you know, the the value of weight training and strength training, what it did. And, um, but I didn't know if I really wanted to make that my career. And then, um, when I went to the university of Texas, I just, I, I think I just threw all my eggs in the basket in, in one basket. And I said, all right, I'm going to try and intern at, at the university of Texas. So I'm just going to, I'm going to see if I can cut it as a strength coach. And, um, Thankfully, and um, God willing, I, that then ended up working out pretty well. And, and then I went to New Mexico State for a year. And then I found my way up to Stanford somehow, and that was a huge blessing. And yeah, I was there for ten years, so that was that's kind of how it all ended up. And then in 2016, you uh, went to California Baptist University at that time, Division Two. Now, now transitioning to Division One. What what has that been like for you? That uh, transitioning from D two to D one. Uh, the transition's been great. Um, I think I think honestly, from D two to D one, um, the CBU is a very CBU is awesome. Um, it's a great place to work, and they had um, when I came in, I was really uh, they've been really blessed to have a great. They had a great little strength and conditioning program before I got there. As a and um, you know, as we transitioned, it was really just building a better, building a bigger facility, and not even that actually. Well, we had. We built a facility and we just started um, that we just kept going. We just kept going with what we were doing. There's not a lot, not a lot for me actually changed except for a few different, I think, you know, NCAA rules or compliance rules. But aside from that, we were just kind of rolling with everything. We just kept training athletes and uh, doing the best we could with them. What are the facilities like there at CBU? You mentioned the strength and conditioning areas, but obviously they, they built a new arena in the last couple of years and, and seems like they're uh, really headed on the upward trajectory there. Right. That, the, the arena, the, the event center is, uh, it's, it's beautiful. The event center is beautiful. Uh, but our, in terms of um, athletics, I, the biggest build was uh, our, our new athletic performance center, which is our weight room. Um we went from when I first got it there in 2016. The weight room was uh, 25, 2,500 square feet. It was, mm-hmm. it was on the smaller side, but it was a really, really great weight room. Um, and uh, we just last year or last fall, we had just moved into a 10,000 
800 square foot weight room Whoa. and it's uh it's brand new yeah it's huge um and it's it's the biggest weight room in california um for a school that does not have football hmm. so um we wanted to have something big so that we could uh, accommodate all of our student athletes uh we could train multiple teams at, a, at the same time uh we we needed something that we could um you know, we could run and do conditioning and just have more space and have, have something that really, um, really made a difference for our student athletes. And, uh, so we, they, you know, we have a huge amount of support and it was just amazing that, uh, they built that, they built that facility and we're really blessed. We're just really blessed to have that there. Well, hopefully everybody will be able to get back in the, in the weight room before too long. Now, Jason, personally for you, uh, what are, what are some positives that have uh, come from being able to stay at home? Obviously, you get to work out with your dog, but uh, I imagine you get to uh, spend more time with family, maybe a little more work-life balance. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's it's certainly been in transition, like everyone else has said, and um, uh, definitely working a little bit more work-life balance uh, is, is certainly one thing. Um you know, I spent a lot of time with my family. It's nice to it's nice to be home for lunch and dinner and breakfast and and uh, hang out with hang out with my daughter and my wife. Um, of course, with my you know working out with my dog and stuff like that. But um, it's it's been neat. It's been neat, and I think um, you know the, the positive is I I think for everybody is definitely you know whether they like it or not, staying at home is probably a good thing because it is taking people and making them realize that, you know, um, you have to have more of a balance. It can't, you can't always be career oriented. You know, there's, there's definitely, um, you know, your family life has to be, it has to be a priority in some way. And so it's nice to try to figure out how to balance that out a little bit more and, um, you know, be there for my wife and my kid. So, um, it's been neat. And then, um, just actually not having equipment. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm one of the few strength coaches that I don't have any equipment on my home. So I, so I have, I, I've, I pretty much have nothing. So I've gotten way more comfortable running again and, uh, doing body weight exercises just like I'm doing for the fit Friday stuff. And, um, it's actually been a blessing, I think, because it's, it's like going back down to your roots and your fundamentals again, um, for training. And so I think that's, I think if I can pass that along to our athletes, that's a, that's, a, that's certainly a positive. Well, hey, Jason, we want to thank you for taking some time out. Hope you and your family stay safe and healthy. And uh, we look forward to uh, to seeing you here uh, before too long, hopefully once uh, events get back up going. Definitely. Uh, thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. All right. That is Jason Kwan, Director of Strength and Conditioning at California Baptist University. When we come back, we're going to have Scott Williams, the former Chicago Bull Michael Jordan teammate. Now, Grand Canyon University basketball analyst. You're listening to the WAC Podcast. Today's episode of the WAC Podcast is presented by Hercules Tire. Now, back to the WAC Podcast. Welcome back to the WAC Podcast. Eric Danner with you and joining us now, a very special guest, the Grand Canyon University analyst for their TV games for men's basketball. His name is Scott Williams. Scott, how are you doing today? Eric, I'm doing fantastic. I'm telling you, I'm having a, uh, I'm having a little bit. Of, I'm coming down off a sugar high. I had a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of birthday cake. Uh, so it was a double whammy. I had the Mother's Day, 
in the birthday uh, celebration yesterday. I, I think I ate way too many slices of uh, a frosted cake. <laughs> frosted cake and then but, meatloaf, right? Yeah, well, yeah, like I mentioned beforehand, yeah, I'm following that up with meatloaf. I, I ended up laying around in bed. I, I quite honestly, uh, I had I had a couple adult beverages as well, so uh, I kind of off to a slow start. This this is my first meal of the day. <laughs> well, Scott, uh, wanted to have you on the show. Obviously, uh, the uh, the last dance is is the big topic for everybody. We wanted to talk to you at first. Uh, about some of the changes happening at Grand Canyon U- University in the past month or so. Uh, it, it seems like a real long time ago when, when we are in WAC Vegas back in March uh, and the, the season was canceled and, and this whole right. coronavirus thing hit. Uh, but the, I remember the night I was heading back home, uh, looked on my phone, saw Dan Marley was no longer the head coach at GCU, and it didn't take long. They they did a quick search and found a guy named Bryce Drew, who's got a lot of experience. He's got some NCAA tournament wins, and and seems to be a really good fit for what GCU is looking for. Well, I have to agree. First of all, I got to say I'm, I'm I'm sad to see Coach Marley go. Uh, Matty was a good friend and a business partner. He was successful there for a while. And uh, thought the team was going to be moving in the right direction. He got to the WAC championship game a couple years in a row, but just couldn't get over the hump. And then things uh, kind of went, you know, south from there this year. Suspensions, injuries. Uh, they just couldn't get off the launch pad, get out of the get out of the starting gates. Um, and it was time for a change. I think sometimes in coaching, just the nature of the business, after about six, seven years. Uh, a different voice around the program needs to be heard. Doesn't happen everywhere, right? Uh, but it happens more often than not. And uh, it's nice to have a guy like you mentioned, uh, and uh, Bryce Drew, son of a coach, son of a Hall of Fame coach. Let me correct myself. Uh, <laughs> coming in, I mean, his brother successful at Baylor. Uh, the guy knows basketball, uh, not only from a way to t- understanding how to teach it, being around all that experience all those years but playing the game, knowing what the players are going for. I mean, who could forget the shot he hit in the two in the NC2A tournament to uh, give him a win? And one thing I'll say about that shot real quickly is he had missed a shot previously, a wide-open look uh, that would have tied the game, and and then uh, they had to foul, and the, the guy missed two free throws, and they go back to him again, and he delivers. So – I mean, that's just a that's just a great story. I mean, on the recruiting trail, that must be a home run. Talking to Scott Williams, and earlier in the show, Scott, I had uh, Rachel Vigil on. We we're talking a little bit uh, about Chris Jans from New Mexico State was. Uh, uh, on Twitter, anyway, being linked to East Tennessee State, and then he uh, sent out a tweet last week, said he's he's back and that he's looking forward to next year. Hashtag unfinished business. And part of the conversation <laughs> we had was that New Mexico State really is the bar for the whack. I mean, and and that's the thing is, you know, you mentioned Coach Marley had a, a number of good seasons there at GCU, but to get over that hump, it, that's a pretty big hump because you got to be able to to get over New Mexico State. Yeah, they're the biggest, baddest team on the on, in the conference, that's for sure. And I know, like GCU likes to consider it a, a, their you know, their biggest rival, but until you've knocked them off, is it really a rivalry? <laughs> you know, it's it was kind of like those years back when uh, Coach K was trying to get his program to where Dean Smith had established <laughs> his program, and it was it was the rivalry kind of had shifted from NC State now in North Carolina to uh, North Carolina and Duke. But Carolina was still, you know, just smashing them or beating them. But you could tell they were coming on. 
And I think that's what it's got to be. I think it's got to be a situation where you start beating them in the regular season and eventually get past them in the whack before it's a, a real rivalry. Because New Mexico State, you know, you mentioned Coach Janice, they're just special. Uh, they, they play hard. They, they work the ball around. They play as a team. They're well coached. They're just tough to beat. And then on in women's basketball for GCU, Nicole Powell, uh, the, the Lopes had a, a really good season. They were the three seed in, in the WAC tournament uh, before it was canceled. And, and she takes the job at UC Riverside. And again, not too long of a search. And they find Molly Miller, a coach with a, a big-time winning resume from Drury University, a, a Division II school, but uh, seems to be another really good fit for GCU. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about a girl, uh, excuse me, a lady that was getting it done uh, down at the D2 ranks. Uh, I think she's lost one game in her last two seasons right. down there. Her win percentage, like 92%, which is absolutely crazy. I, I don't know the competition that they were facing, but they were smashing whoever the heck they were they were, they were facing <laughs> up against. And that's all That's all you could do is play the people out in front of you. So, obviously um, – she knows X's and O's. She knows how to motivate a team because that's the biggest, I guess, problem with coaching sometimes is when young people have an expectation every time they take the floor that they're going to win, you don't always get consistent, they're consistently their best performances. And you have to find ways to motivate them, especially if you're up on a team after the first quarter, you know, you're up double digits already and you're cruising and maybe on a, a 15 to 25 point lead at the half, you've got to keep those guys focused and working hard and, and trying to be the best team they can be so they can be the best player players that they can be. And I think that that's going to bring a lot of, a lot of experience and uh, to a team that was already kind of moving in the right direction. Like you said, talking with Scott Williams spent 15 years in the NBA as a player. Uh, you're from Hacienda Heights, California, McDonald's All-American. When it comes time to uh, decide on a college there, Scott, you decide on the blue and white there at the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith. Was that a uh, a difficult decision for you or was it a no-brainer? Um, mixed emotions, let me put it that way, because I was uh, a big-time uh, UCLA Bruin fan and a Los Angeles Laker fan. I just mm-hmm. knew I was going to go on to play for the Bruins one day, and then I was going to slide over from Westwood to Inglewood and play for the Lakers <laughs> when I was done at UCLA. I had it all figured out. <laughs> uh, but then when it was time for my senior year, I, I kind of went from a good player in the region to blew up one summer after my junior year, I uh, kind of did this thing where I was playing an AAU basketball in Memphis. We won the national championship. I got an invitation to go to Princeton for a, uh, a Nike tournament there and, and played really strongly against the competition there. So in about a month's period of time, I went from an average local player to what well, top five player in the country. Um, and I always wanted to go to UCLA and they, you know, they had Pooh Richardson and Reggie Miller was still there. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I follow the Bruins every day, toted a blue and, and uh, gold, uh, um, duffel bag. I carried my books to school <laughs> in that duffel bag for about six or seven years. Thing was worn down to the nub, but, uh, it was my lucky duffel bag. And they were recruiting another kid whose name was Kevin Walker. He was a, another six ten kid. Wasn't in my league, but, We'd face often from time to time in holiday tournaments and stuff. And I'd eat his lunch. But Walt Hazard, the head coach at the Bruins at the time, kept going to Walker's 
uh, games and uh, he's getting his name in the paper, being at his games. And you know, back then we didn't have any internet. You know, you got right. all your, your you got all your information Street from and the Smith. sports section in the in the, <laughs> in the news in the newspaper. And right. If you could get in L.A. Times, you were big time, right? Yeah. So I'm not getting any love. When well, I got North Carolina, uh, DePaul, Georgia Tech, Villanova, fresh off a national championship in '85 coming out to visit me meeting with my principals and my teachers and i can't get the the bruins to drive 45 minutes down the road uh to to, uh give me any show me any love so uh, when coach smith comes for his official home visit he uh was very savvy he invited my mother to come with me on my campus visit to north carolina and she just loved that because no other no other school had done that. She jumped at the opportunity. And when she got a little taste of that small town, southern, charming camp, college campus, uh, that was it. She was sold. Uh, she already liked Coach Smith, but the the, the beautifulness, the beauty of the campus, um, you know, the oldest state university in the country. Um, you imagine the way the buildings are built and just the path through walking path through campus. Uh, she loved it. And she wanted me to tell coach Smith before we had even left, uh, on a, on Sunday, we arrived on a Friday and left on a Sunday that I was going to come to school there and play for the Tar Heels. But I still had, I still had hopes that UCLA would come around. Uh, but when the coach called me and told me that they had transposed a digit of my phone number incorrectly, and that they were trying to get a hold of me, but every time they called, they got a busy signal. Um, even as a 17-year-old kid, that didn't sit real well with me. So, like I said, I was only 45 minutes down the road, and that's probably with traffic back then. Talking with Scott Williams, and actually one time, Scott, I, I had a chance to see you in college. Uh, you don't remember this, I'm sure I remember it, though, but uh, your senior year at North Carolina, you play in the Mile High Classic. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember I, 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 being from Denver, went to a Division II school, uh, just down the road from what was then McNichols Arena, and uh, mm-hmm. it was the year the that Denver was hosting the Final Four. So I think they wanted to have some kind of big time college basketball games at McNichols, kind of as a dress rehearsal. And we were actually the, or my school was the uh, game before your game. So well, I pa- passed you in the hallway and and gave you the uh, hey what's up uh, type of thing. You and uh, Rick Fox were on that team, and and uh, yeah. what a uh, what a a career you've had and what an experience it must have been to to play at North Carolina during that time when they were the the school in in the country and, and to play for Dean Smith oh it was fantastic I mean coach Smith was wonderful I totally made the right decision by going there going into my sophomore year I lost my parents uh to a murder suicide and coach Smith stepped in seamlessly and kind of was there for me as a father figure for the rest of my time at North Carolina, Carolina and beyond in, into the pros. Uh, so the man, the man really did care for all of his players, not just me, but uh, y- you could tell it was genuine. It wasn't something he was, he was selling like a used car salesman for just to get in top recruits. That, and that was huge. I mean, we were my freshman year with Kenny Smith and Joe Wolf and Kenny Smith with the, a lot of people don't remember Kenny Smith, the jet was like the top point guard in the nation. Uh, we were number one most of the season, went undefeated in the ACC. Um, but uh, late in egg in the, comp- the Eastern Conference uh, uh, championship game, and Syracuse ended up beating us and, and going to the Final Four, which was 
after winning 31 games, it felt like a letdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just it was just a special place. Good guys it taught me, you know, the ropes and the Carolina family, the people Coach Smith surround himself with, playing internationally, play, you know, playing uh, all over the country, um, even even out into Hawaii and Alaska. So, as a young kid from Southern California that didn't know a whole lot about the rest of the country or the world, I always thought the sun rose and sat in California. We always, <laughs> we always thought we were the not only just California but Southern California. We thought we were the were the best, you know, uh, with Hollywood right down the road and the beaches and the mountains and lakes and rivers and you could do just about anything you wanted in Southern California if your heart desired. So uh, it was tough to leave, but I knew I made the right decision especially after some of the things uh, that had happened to me. But my senior year was a little tough. I mean, I, I start the year off and I, I have to have an uh, emergency appendectomy. Uh, that slowed me down. We had lost J.R. Reed, kind of my banger that was with me in, inside. And uh, our point guard, uh, King Rice, who was a, a good ball handler, you know, he couldn't shoot 40% from the field if you held a, a gun <laughs> to the back of his head. So uh, it, it was it was a tough year. But it ended with a bang as we made the tournament and uh, beat Oklahoma in the tournament, who was the top seed, overall seed in the entire tournament. We shocked the, the basketball world when a lot of people had given up on us, but we didn't give up on ourselves, which was kind of cool. Now, as I was researching this interview, Scott, I, I was trying to think, I was like, well, he must have been a, a late first round pick. The Bulls were a good team. You didn't get drafted. I was like, wait a second, this is, this can't be right. How, how did you not get drafted? Yeah, it was uh, it was tough. I, I, but it was tough, but it was, but it was also uh, a good thing that I probably wasn't drafted um, because if you're kind of a late second-round pick, you might get on a team that doesn't really fit your style, and, and you could get you know maybe a, a cup of coffee here and a cup of coffee there, and you get bounced out of the league. But I always say I was the luckiest undrafted player because – but I almost messed it up. And the reason why I wasn't drafted um, was my shoulder. I had a bad shoulder for a couple of years in college. Never caused me to miss a game or a practice, but it would dislocate or sublex, come kind of come off, and it caused me some pain. I didn't have to come out of the game for you know uh, ten or fifteen minutes, and then you know ice it down, and I could go back in after a while. Uh, and I think it scared off a lot of coaches and general managers. They're like, "Well, if you can't handle you know thirty games in a, in a college season, how's he going to handle?" Uh, 80 to 100 games at the pro level and I knew it wasn't an issue for me it was painful at time I need to have it corrected but I, I sh- and I should have had it corrected probably after my junior year and um, didn't but uh, that scared a lot of teams off so I went to Charlotte I, I thought okay after the draft uh, I got to pick myself back up here I'll go down to Charlotte they want to give me a little tryout so I go down there before the tryout they give me a physical start pulling on my arm and my shoulder and I'm like what are you doing and they're like yeah we're gonna, we're not gonna we're not gonna pass you. Uh, you got a bad shoulder. I was like, like no duh, I got a bad shoulder. I, that's the reason why I wasn't drafted, fool. What are you wasting my time for? So I call my agent. He says, okay, head to the airport. I got a ticket waiting for you. Uh, Chicago's going to give you a, a tryout. And so I, 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 you know, that was what paper tickets. You couldn't, you couldn't even electronically, no email back then for Christ's sake. So I, I hustle on over to the airport straight from the Hornets uh, training facility. And uh, fly to Chicago. The first person that uh, beats me at O'Hare is Jerry Krause. <laughs> and, and, and the rest is kind of history. I, I make the rookie team, uh, summer league team. Um, played well enough there to get an invitation to the veterans camp. Uh, where they had 
I think it was seven of us trying out for the last spot. They had 11 guys on a guaranteed contract. And um, so we were all battling it out for that, that last spot on the roster. That was back in the nineties, you know, you practice at a health club and the teams only carry 12 players. So it was, it was tough, a lot of pressure, but I understood the triangle offense right away. I picked it up and that was the, the great thing. I didn't make mistakes in the offense. I learned how to read and react to the way defenses were playing. I always made the right pass. 90% of the time, that was to, to Jordan. <laughs> Give him the ball. You got less problems. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and so one day they just made a couple cuts, and the next day they cut the rest of the guys. And I guess, okay, so I guess I'm still here. There's no press conference. They didn't tell me I made the team, but you know, everybody else is gone, so I guess I'll just keep playing. <laughs> now, as the story goes, Scott, MJ recommended you to Jerry Krause. Was that part of the deal? Yeah. Um, so after I don't get drafted after a long cry, I, uh, get an invitation from Jordan to play in a pickup basketball game that he has for his buddy who does a camp for kids, uh, in Greensboro, um, underprivileged kids. It's a free camp. They can't afford to go to camp, uh, pay for camp. So he puts on this camp and he invites like some of his buddies, Rod Higgins, Muggsy Bogues would come, Charles Oakley and a couple other pros. And uh, it was just for the campers and the immediate family, parents, brothers, sisters. That was it. No media in there, um, no cameras, no reporters, no nothing. And we would just ball. And we would ball hard. In fact, Jordan comes in the locker room prior to us going, you know, campers are all settling in and, and they're all settling in their seats, waiting for us to come out, they're playing music. He goes, listen, if you didn't come here to play hard, please leave. <laughs> and we all kind of like looked at each other like, Dude, serious right now? We're not getting paid for that. <laughs> you know, this is like all voluntary, right? And he was serious as a heart attack. We would play. We would. There was no no easy lay, no easy layups. Guys get bumped and hipped and forearmed and knocked down and uh, you know uh, on defense, starting playing defense. You know, just on the other side of half court, it was serious. Well, I was on Jordan's team, and we we're down one. Uh, in the final moments of the of the game, I find the ball in my hand. I think after a either offensive rebound or a pass came to me, someone was driving the lane and dished it to me. And I thought, I can go up with this ball or I can find MJ, the baddest dude that ever put on a pair of basketball sneakers and let him take the, the game when he <laughs> shot. So I make the perfect chest pass that like Coach Smith taught me. <laughs> it hits me right in the money spot and he cans like a 19 to 20. 20 footer on the baseline for the one point victory. <laughs> and I think I played just well enough in that game, holding my own against some of the other pros that uh, it, he put a bug in Krause's ears. I find out years later um, to give me a look. See, so you play for the Chicago bulls from 1990 to 94, obviously the last dance on ESPN is, is the big thing going on in sports as there's no games or anything. I think even if there were games going on, I think this would be a huge deal. They, they've done a great job with it. Episodes seven and eight were on uh, Sunday night. There were three, three instances I saw you, Scott, uh, I wanted to ask you about in particular. First one was when the Detroit Pistons lost in the playoffs to the bulls, the famous walk by, by the Pistons, <laughs> you're standing right next to Michael Jordan. Do yeah. you do you say anything to the Pistons as they leave the floor? Was there any words exchanged there? I'll be honest. It was the 
least classy thing I'd ever said. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it, it was just classless. Right. The way they walked by. I was stunned. I I don't know if you can tell by my facial expressions. Everyone says, oh, you, you, we can always tell what you're thinking by what you, <laughs> your face looks. I got no poker face. Uh, but I was like slack jawed as I kind of was moving my, my head a little bit, like wa- watching these guys come by the bench on their way to their locker. And even Isaiah, like he, at one point, he like ducks down low at the waist and kind of does a little shimmy behind one of the big players. Yeah, Lambeer, I think. Around, yeah, yeah. around Lambeer, like so he doesn't have to make any eye contact with anybody. Like even like, like eye contact, a head nod, or, you know, he said like, kind of like that what's up or congrats or what, nothing. And I was, like I see, I'm standing next to Jordan, and I'm just a little rookie. Uh, but we had beaten uh, the Atlanta Hawks in the first round. I believe we, no, excuse me, the New York Knicks we beat in the first round. Mm-hmm. We swept them. And I remember Patrick Ewing and all those guys coming over and shaking our hands even after we kicked their tail. And then we beat uh, Philadelphia in the 76ers with Charles Barkley and Hershey Hawkins. They had a pretty good squad. Uh, should have been a sweep. I think Hershey hit one shot at the buzzer to give them one victory. But we pretty much dominated that series, and they all shook our hands. So I just kind of figured that that was the norm. So to see these guys, the two-time champions, a team that had beaten the Bulls the previous three years, not find it inside themselves – to say congratulations, uh, it, it was shocking, just, just to say the, to say the least. I know that some other guys had some stronger words for it, but uh, <laughs> I, I was we, we talked about it like on the plane after the game. But I was so excited to go from undrafted rookie that year to finding myself in the NBA Finals. I really didn't give a damn. I was like, I was so excited, and, and we're going to face the Los Angeles Lakers. Team that I grew up idolizing as a kid, Magic Johnson, and reason why I wore number forty-two at North Carolina was because of James Doherty. Excuse me, James Worthy. This was this was like a dream come true for me. I'm like, this this doesn't happen to undrafted players. You normally, like I said, have a cup of coffee somewhere and you're out the league. And I'm playing against the Pistons. I'm playing against the Lakers. I'm like, I thought I was the luckiest man on the planet. So the the episode seven, I think, aired Sunday night, well, the Jordan retirement episode. And when he's giving yeah. his press conference and and you and, and all your teammates are there, what what was going through your mind? Did you have any idea yeah. that was coming? It was like it was like attending a funeral for someone that you loved. That was that was my emotions. I was just so sad and uh, depressed, like like one of your, like one of your brother, you know, a family member or somebody had passed. Uh, I think I'm not alone when I, when I share that it was, there was nothing to be happy about mm-hmm. <laughs> at that time. Uh, and I, and I realized, well, when word comes down, uh, Jordan was out of, I think they actually showed him. He was at a white Sox game. Right. And he was in the owner's box and I was in, a, I was at the game too. It was a playoff game. So it was kind of late. And uh, of course, Reinsdorf owned the White Sox. We used to get choice seats, and I was in a, I was in a, I was in another box, uh, kind of up the third base line a little bit. And he was kind of right behind home plate. And so they made some sort of announcement that came across the broadcast on the TV in the suite. And I knew where he was at. Uh, they had flashed him up there earlier, and so I made a beeline down there. Uh, and uh, he, he gave, we, I remember exactly what I said, but we talked about his retirement. I gave him a big hug. Uh, couldn't have been more than about three to five minutes, but 
it was devastating for all of us. And I think when we're sitting there at that presser, the next that was the next day he has the press conference. Um, it was sad, and I kind of I kind of understood what he was going through, the emotions that he was going through. I always right. thought his love for the game is still strong, but his father had just been murdered that summer. And I know what that pain is like because when I lost my mother, mm-hmm. uh, I told Coach Smith uh, – excuse me, I didn't tell, you don't tell Coach Smith anything. <laughs> I asked <laughs> Coach Smith if I could sit out uh, the season because it happened like the first, like right before the first day of practice. And I still had my red shirt year available to me. And coach Smith said, no, <laughs> he's like, no, I watch a team. And, uh, it was, it was hard, but it was the best thing for me. It was, it was a great therapy for me. Uh, you concentrating on a Dean Smith practice for three hours, remembering the thought for the day, the defensive emphasis, the offensive emphasis, all the plays for that matter. Um, and you're doing that on not a whole lot of sleep because you just, I mean, after something like that, you're just not sleeping real good. You're not thinking real well. So you got to just lock in and, and tune it in. And I, I always just thought that I think that's what what's going on with him. It was the whole idea that his father had seen him play his final game. And uh, Mr. Jordan was always around the program, especially mm-hmm. in, the, in the playoffs. So uh, they were tight, as you could tell from the documentary. And so I just think he had just a lot of mixed emotions. I wasn't quite sure how to deal with them. And if I'm Scott Williams at North Carolina struggling to deal with, you know, obscure play, struggling to deal with my own stuff, I can't imagine being the most popular athlete in the world having to go through what he's got to go through with media and fans and, every, and everything else and then try to deal with his own personal loss and grieving. I, I got it. But I knew he was coming back. I just didn't know when he was coming back. I wish he would have told me, hey, I'm coming back to you. Because <laughs> I never would have left Chicago, man. <laughs> then were you surprised he played baseball? Were you surprised about that part of the retirement, that he went to go yeah, play baseball that, at age that 31? That came out of nowhere. I didn't get the whole baseball thing. I, my Baseball was my first love growing up, too. It didn't mean I was going to be a pro baseball player. I guess he was doing okay with it. He was learning. Uh, and they said that maybe if the strike hadn't happened, he might have stuck, stuck with it a little bit longer. Uh, thank goodness there was a baseball strike because uh, the guy's talent laid on the on the basketball court, not the baseball diamond. You, you never convinced me that he was going to be a great baseball player. <laughs> now, the, the other uh, thing, I, I, I'm not sure if it was episode seven or eight. So after Jordan retires, Bulls uh, are in the playoffs and Scottie Pippen's kind of the guy and he decides not to go back in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Tony Kukoc buzzer beater winner and then a quick uh, grab of the neck by uh, by Scott Williams, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm always flying off that bench or waving a towel and doing something. And, and, you know, and that was the great thing about those teams in Chicago. We pressed each other hard for minutes uh, but uh, in practice, but we celebrated each other's successes on the court. And Tony was just in a bad spot coming in. Krause did him no favors whatsoever. Because when we were winning championship after championship after championship, all we ever heard was Tony Kukoc. You know, like, Tony Kukoc. He was playing in Europe, bro. And Europe wasn't nothing back then. Right. Like you, the bad players went to Europe. <laughs> it's like, so we're like, that's like, it wasn't even good college basketball. Teams were better than some of these pro-European teams. We're, I said, we're playing the best sports league, winning championships. We won 61, 67. I can't remember, 60-plus games our third year. Uh, and you're telling us about some 
dude over in, in, in Europe playing ball. So it was an insult to a lot of the guys on our team. And I think especially Scotty Pippen. And I didn't know a whole lot about the contract situation back then. I'm truly learning out about more of this now. I mean, I knew it was underpaid, but I didn't understand kind of some of the other parts about the negotiations or lack thereof, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I could see it. it Pip was pissed. Like when he didn't go into that game, I think Phil had to call a second time out and Cartwright's talking to him, trying to tell him, Scott, you don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I just kind of spun out of the huddle. Like, Oh my God, what's going on? <laughs> uh, but it was, it was just a bizarre scene. And I, I understand Pip being upset that I paid my dues. I've won the championships. I've carried this team all year. We were good that year. We won 55 games. Really picked it up the second half of the season. We were especially good after, you know, kind of losing our footing when Jordan retired. I mean, that staggered us all. We got off to a slow start. But then we really picked it up. Uh, Pip was having having an uh, MVP-type year. I think he finished third in voting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think he felt like, I deserve this. I've earned this right to be the MJ in this moment. I mean, Phil wouldn't have drawn the player for Tony Kukoc if MJ was on the team. I guarantee you that. So Pip felt like I deserve that status now. I deserve the ball to have the ball in my hand. So I get some of that. But at the end of the day, we're all sailors on that ship. And it's the head coach is the captain uh, of any program that you're involved with. And even Jordan, um, I think he would have been happy if he drawn up the play for Tony Kukoc, but <laughs> even Jordan never really stepped on Phil's toes like that. He always had respect for Phil being the head coach. Uh, and so for Scotty to do that, um, it really it really busted the team up a little bit, especially Cartwright. I, I'd never seen Bill Cartwright cry. He was the biggest, strongest dude I'd ever played against. Uh, and to see him in the locker room after the game, talking to Scotty about how he quit on the team and just tears pouring down his cheeks like he was a six-year-old. I, I, you could have heard a pin drop in that locker. We were all – I get chills just thinking mm. about it. It was the most surreal scene um, that I, I had ever seen. And I was worried that this might be one of those things that haunts Scottie Pippen the rest of his career. Can you remember Bill Buckner? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah but... you know, just a Hall of Fame player, played great uh, his entire career, and he's known for one error – uh, on the field, that ball rolling between his legs is the first thing somebody thinks about. Right. Uh, that cost, uh, I want to say it was the Yankees or the Red Sox. Uh, Red a Sox. World, a shot of the world cha- a world champion, uh, World Series title. So I was hoping that, I, I didn't want that, but I was afraid that that Pippen might be known for those, we got 1.8 seconds at the end of the game or not, for not going in there and quitting on his team. But thank goodness, uh He's not, and on top of that, he came back in game four and had a monster game four. We were able to tie the series up, so uh, it, it kind of all worked out, but uh, it was it was definitely we- weird to watch. Talking with Scott Williams, who is the men's basketball analyst for uh, GCU Games on Television. Uh, Scott, uh, after your career with the, the Bulls ended, uh, you went on to the Sixers, Bucks, Nuggets, Suns, Mavericks, and finished up your 15 career 15-year career in Cleveland in 2004-05 when they had a young man by the name of LeBron James on the team. So you're one of only four guys in NBA history to be a teammate of both Michael Jordan and LeBron James. So I will give the uh, inevitable question here, Scott, who's the better player? Well, you know, I I obviously get that question a lot. In fact, I I use that uh, 
being one of only four players who ever played with Michael Jordan and LeBron James as a trivia question in bars. I'd stump a lot of these super fans that want to come <laughs> up and start talking basketball, and they're asking me a, you know, a, a bunch of questions and rapid fire. And I'm like, okay, I got a question for you. <laughs> and, that, and I said, I'll bet you a beer you can't name them. They're like, oh, okay, bet. You know, so anyway, uh, it's always a good one. I always take a couple beers off my buddies with that one. But uh, I, had the, I had the pleasure of playing, I think, with Jordan at, at the height of his career. Right. And LeBron was kind of just getting it figured out uh, in his second, third, and fourth year there. Uh, and I and I did broadcasting for the team for right after I finished right. playing for his years two uh, years three and four, so I got a, really got a chance to watch the maturation process. And the only thing that I I will say, and they're like the best of the best Hall of Famers. I mean, let's not get it twisted. Uh, he, he's going to go down as the best of the best Hall of Famer in that class with Bird and Johnson, uh, Bryant. Uh, th- those guys are different breed of Hall of Famers. And um, and I love Scottie Pippen, but he's not even in, in, in that type of class. And he was a phenomenal player, okay? So I got a lot of love for LeBron and what he's done. But for me, Michael Jordan possessed a, a different type of stardom uh, and competitiveness that I've never seen in another athlete ever again. And like, when I say that, it's kind of hard to put it to words. We played a different style of basketball back then, a lot more physical. Uh, and MJ would get beat up pretty good, uh-huh. uh, especially if we're playing against the Pistons or the Knicks. Uh, and we're saying we're playing at Charlotte the next night, you know, just a little expansion team. Uh, it didn't matter to him. Like he wanted anybody that was going to be in that arena that night, anybody watching on TV or listening on the radio, uh, any player that had on a pair of shorts to realize that, you will never beat me. You have no chance to beat me. You won't be in the same discussion when they talk about NBA players with me. And that's after playing 35 minutes the night before and dropping 40, 40 on somebody. He still had that same sort of mentality that it's not just good enough to come out here and make sure we get the win at the end of the game. It's like I want, I want you to – when you go to bed at night and think about playing me in basketball, you won't even have the confidence to believe that you could even beat me in your dreams. And that was, and that's something a little different than some of these other guys had. And that was a good thing. It worked for him, but it, all, it worked against him at times too. I know some of the guys are talking about we were afraid of Michael in practice and this, that. And the other. I was never afraid of Michael, but the intensity that the guy had all the time, it was almost like an illness. Uh, it was – you know, everyone talks about Mamba mentality. Mm-hmm. Mamba mentality was nothing compared to what I witnessed my rookie year in the NBA with Michael Jordan when he was chasing that first championship ring. And then to compare that to LeBron, I mean, obviously, you're the, the veteran at, at the end of your career. He, as you mentioned, is the young guy. Did he have that same kind of intensity, or, or is it a bit different than what MJ had? A, a different intensity, but the same competitive spirit, uh, the same uh, want to the same like when I say want to, that's a terrible phrase to say. No, no analyst should ever say that. Uh, <laughs> but he wanted to get better every day, and that was refreshing. That was something I hadn't seen with a lot of the superstars that I play with. And you know, Cliff Levin seems like I played with six Hall of Famers. I was like, damn, I wonder how many Hall of Famers I've played with because I know I played I played with a bunch, uh, and I played with a bunch of all stars this too. Uh, and I but. I hadn't played I mean, Ray Allen, Glenn Robinson, uh, the Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki. Those guys were all great players, and they all thirsted to win. But 
LeBron had something every day in practice that he wanted to get a little better on. I don't want to say like just a gym rat because, you know, Nowitzki and Nash were gym rats. They'd open up the gym at 930 on a Friday night and go get up shots. But, but it was just a little bit something different that I that I picked up on that was similar to the way Michael approached his time, you know, kind of like in the gym. He called the gym, the lab, whatever you want to call it. Those guys were were students of the game. They wanted to get better, and LeBron did. He always worked on something, either course of the season or in the summertime. He brought something back to his game that he had improved on. And I saw that with an early age. He used to ask me about guys that I played with, with Jordan and Pippen. We were riding on the planes after games, and I'd tell him stories about this guy or that guy. One time I was telling a story. Uh, about an old center. I can't remember what it was. I can't remember it was James Donaldson, but damn, James Donaldson might have been out of the league before I get him. But anyway, the player doesn't matter. What he what matters was he's like, you know, Scott, how old are you? <laughs> you know, I was like, end of my career, 15 year career, four years of college. I got about 20 years on this body. And I just said, you know, I'm 37. And he's just, and he was uh, just turned 20. And he said, you're older than my mom. <laughs> I was just kind of like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there's got to be something down on like page 10 or 12 of that NBA contract in fine print that says you can't be older than your teammates' parents. I think it was shortly after that I, I walked up to the front of the plane, told Coach Silas, I was like, you can let me go anytime now. <laughs> I had enough. <laughs> now you, so after the uh, 05 season, then uh, you, you get into broadcasting, as you mentioned, with with the Cavs, and, and you did some Bucks broadcasting. Also got into coaching. What uh, – did you have a, a preference at the time? I mean, what what uh, road you wanted to take once you retired, if it was broadcasting or coaching? I uh, always wanted to be a coach. Uh, it just it just so happened I was pretty good at broad, <laughs> the broadcast. Yeah. Uh, so, like last year in Cleveland, I wasn't really playing a lot. Anderson Barajao, uh, I don't know if you remember that name. Yeah, the hairball from Brazil, young player came in. I think at eighteen or nineteen, he was just a bottle a bundle of energy, and I just couldn't I couldn't outplay him anymore. After he started learning the NBA game, I taught him a little bit too fast, I think. So by the end of the season, I was I was pretty much out of the rotation. In fact, that was back when they had the the injured list, but you weren't you know you weren't really injured. They were just trying to hide you on the roster, so to speak, to make room for another guy. So I spent most of my time on game days, like riding the uh, elliptical bike or um, riding the stationary bike, or the run, doing the elliptical or treadmill or whatever, trying to stay in some condition for practices. Uh, and one of the guys from the TV crew came to me and said, we'd like to start a uh, part of the pregame show where we rotate a player in to talk about the pulse of the team, maybe a funny story about what happened on the road. Uh, and he said, we'd like you to do it first. And I said, yeah, sure. It gets me off this treadmill. <laughs> I'm down for that. So right before the team would take the court, um, I'd come on and do this little hit. Well, I did such a nice job with it. They um, they asked me to do it every every home game. I said, <laughs> fine by me, you know. So they made a little graphic. They called it Wisdom with Williams. I'd just say something funny, uh, maybe about something McGinnis did or LeBron did or something happened in practice or a road trip or who knows someone lost their luggage or you know it was anything so funny. Maybe it's what we were what we were working on in practice, preparing for that game, yada yada. Uh, and at the time, Mark Price, uh, Cavalier legend, I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, but probably should he be. He should be, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he was doing the color for the Cavs, but he was living in Atlanta, and he was commuting back and forth 
for not only some home games, but also all the home games, but a few road games as well. And um, I don't think his wife was real happy with that situation. He had a bunch of kids. And so he said, I'm not going to come back and do it next year. So the spot really opened up and they were like, Scott, do you want to do it? <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't really want to live in Cleveland. You know, my, my kids were like three and two at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they said, well, we'll fly you back in first. And I was like, first class? They're like, yeah, first class. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I became the Cavs announcer. And I just kind of, I really enjoyed the television because uh, it kept me close to the court. But the whole time I was really trying to seek a coaching, coaching job. But lo and behold, a lot of the coaches would say, well, you don't have any coaching experience. I'm like, yeah, but I played 15 years. <laughs> you're you're busy, weren't you? Jackson, I'm like, I, I think I've earned my stripes. I kind of know this game. <laughs> and what I don't know, I'm, I'm not afraid to put in the hard work to pick up. Well, after hearing that for six or seven years, you finally realize, okay, I got to get some coaching experience. Uh, so that after I left the Bucks, I did Suns TV for about four years. Mm-hmm. which was good because I was back in Phoenix at that point now. And then, uh, but when Terry Stotts, my old coach from Milwaukee, got the job in Portland, I asked him to put me on staff. Of course, he, he gives me the Heisman, but he says, I will let you be assistant coach for the D-League team we just bought. That was back when the G-League was the D-League. Right. And so I, so I it was in Boise. And so I had a place in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So I was familiar with the, landscape of the state state a little bit so i jumped at that opportunity to go to boise so i cut my teeth in coaching uh with the idaho stampede and, and then you at what point do you go back to to phoenix then and and uh, i believe yeah, this was so just one, your sixth one, was this your sixth year at gcu as the uh, yeah, analyst? So one, one year with the idaho stampede and then they, milwaukee bucks called me up to be assistant coach in milwaukee i thought oh this is great i played in milwaukee i love the city of milwaukee the people of milwaukee uh, but I didn't know the owner was selling the team that year. <laughs> so when he sold the team, the new owners came in, and rightfully, they cleared house. We were horrible, 15 games uh, that year is all we won. Uh, and they wanted to bring in their own people. You know what I mean? I, so I got that. But I wish they would have just said that as soon as they bought the team's last game of the year, okay, you guys are all fired. But they kept us around all the way until about July 3rd. Um, and, you know, through the playoffs and the draft and everything, and, and uh, so a lot of these other teams that were had hired new coaches, head coaches, their co- coaches were filling out their assistant coaching rosters. None of the assistants were able to get on on another staff. And that's when I came back to Phoenix um, and I uh, found out about what, what Colangelo and, and uh, Marley were doing over at Grand Canyon University. And they approached me with the opportunity to do uh, the broadcast over there. Well, Rex Chapman was doing the broadcast. Right, right. And, I, and I've known Rex since 85. I mean, we're, we're the same class, the high school class of 86. In fact, Rex was supposed to come to North Carolina hmm. and gave, uh, gave, the, gave Coach Smith the, the, the okey-doke <laughs> at the last minute and ended up going, staying in Kansas. Or it's not or Kansas, Kentucky. Kentucky, right. Also, I, I didn't want to do it. I was hoping they were going to give the job back to Rex, but they said that wasn't going to happen. So after about three attempts – uh, I finally, I finally said yes uh, to that job, and I loved it. I didn't know much about college basketball. It's been so long since I'd been around the college game, uh, but Grand Canyon's got something special there. Um, the president just has done an amazing job, and the school doesn't have football, so he's done an amazing job making bass men's basketball, especially the its sport. Although they done really good things with all their other teams as well and right. facilities they built on campus with soccer field, uh, soccer stadium, and the baseball field or I mean just state of the art 
uh, I fell in love with that environment. I mean, for it was the closest thing that I had seen to like, you know, North Carolina or, or Duke. Um, I mean, big time student support. They got a crazy uh, rooting group called the Havocs that go nuts. Uh, you know, they get in there about an hour before game and get them all revved up. The dancers, the cheerleaders, the band is amazing. Uh, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm all in on this. This is great. I don't got to travel. I don't have to do any road games. Uh, I get to get my basketball fix with some friends that I know. Like I said, Molly and I were business partner, played for Colangelo. Um, it was a, it's a, it was a great situation. It was, it was a great situation there. And it's, it's even, it's a, it's a good situation now too, now that, uh, Bryce Drew's coming in. So I think they're going to keep the, they keep this thing rolling, uh, and just make some improvements and try to get past, like you said, New Mexico state. Yeah. I, I talked to uh, Barry Butel a few times a year and, and I always tell him you guys, brother. You, you guys do a fantastic job. And, and I, I told him, I, I don't know how Scott Williams isn't on ESPN or, or, you know, one of the networks, you know, doing college basketball or pro basketball. You do a fantastic job. Always enjoy listening to you guys. And, and want to thank you, Scott, for taking some time out here. Uh, I could talk to you for another hour or so, but uh, I got to cut this off <laughs> at some point here. But Before you cut me off, let yeah. me just give thanks to Barry uh, for being a great play-by-play uh, uh, play guy. Gives me so many opportunities to get in on the broadcast, and that's probably why you're, you're – able to uh, say such nice things about me and uh, our sideline reporter and, our, and then a member of our team Kate Longworth uh, I couldn't I couldn't do what I do without uh, both of them and and everybody around that supports but especially uh, Kate and Barry they're, they're special people yeah it is a top-notch broadcast Scott and want to wish you and your family hopefully uh, you all stay safe and stay healthy and we'll be looking for you in the basketball season here before too long yeah, we hope to be back on the floor. Everyone stay safe out there. All right, that is Scott Williams, men's basketball analyst from Grand Canyon University. We also had Jason Kwan, the CBU Director of Strength and Conditioning, and Rachel Vigil. And we want to thank you for listening to the WAC Podcast. Thanks for listening to the WAC Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And check out our website at WACsports.com.